Hi, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. The episode you're about to hear is actually one that originally ran over a year ago, not long after we launched the MWI podcast series. It's one of our favorite episodes. It's with best-selling author and MWI non-resident fellow Max Brooks. Max is most well-known for his books, which include World War Z and the Zombie Survival Guide. But he's also got a keen ability to use unique topics, like zombies, to frame and talk about real-world security challenges. You'll hear him do that in this episode. Before we get to that, a couple quick notes. First, we recently launched a second podcast series called The Spear. Each episode features a one-on-one interview with a combat veteran about a particular event. And we use those discussions to explore what the combat experience is really like. We're a few episodes in, and we've got another great one that'll be released next week. The podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, so we'd love it if you'd find it and subscribe. Also, as always, what you hear in this podcast are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of any agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Captain Jake Moraldi talking to Max Brooks. Enjoy the podcast. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about something a little bit different than we normally talk about. This week, we're talking about zombies. Well, kind of. We'll be talking about zombies as a metaphor. Insert real plague here. What we're really talking about is how small things in seemingly insignificant places can turn into big global security issues. We're talking about connecting the dots and understanding the big picture. Bring people together in a connection and see how what could be an environmental crisis or a medical crisis or a social crisis of today will become a national security crisis tomorrow. So how do we get from zombies to real-world security? Well, today on the podcast, we're talking to Max Brooks, author of The Zombie Survival Guide, World War Z, and Harlem Hellfighters. When I sat down with him, I asked him, why zombies? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what zombies, what's great about zombies is they are big. You know, it's to, to my knowledge, other than maybe an alien invasion, it's it's the only sort of mega crisis that you can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we grew up on Godzilla movies, mm-hmm. but the guys who made them, those were the generation that grew up being bombed by B-29s. And they couldn't make a movie about being bombed. Right. So they invented Godzilla. And it was a way to talk about what it was like to live under that kind of unstoppable terror coming to their shores. Yeah. Uh, to me, it seemed like a no-brainer because zombies are always a uh, big stories. You know, it's not like one werewolf or, or one psycho killer killing teenagers at a summer camp. It's it's a global issue. So why not write a global book about how we stop it instead of just writing another story about a small group of people? Right. And I really want to do that <clears throat> because uh, from a national point of view because I think you know for all the great awesome things America does well. W- one of our issues is being isolationist, mm-hmm. and that leads to problems. You know, and it would be fine if we if we were isolationist and we were Denmark, right? But we're not. We're we're an isolationist superpower, and so I wanted to bring in global perspectives. I wanted to talk about how there you can't ignore these little problems because mm-hmm. you see this in wars that America gets involved in over and over again. It's always round one for us, and it's always like round seventeen for the other guy. Right. And and I wish we didn't have so much of a learning curve. So zombies provide a stand-in for potentially little things that happen in the world that turn into huge catastrophes. 
what are those huge catastrophes that we could see in the world? Mr. Brooks outlined one at a talk at the Naval War College. When you think of global warming, somehow we're all supposed to think of a polar bear drowning because the ice is gone. Well, maybe the polar bear doesn't drown. Maybe the polar bear is out of a job. And the polar bear gets radicalized. And the polar bear discovers his religious beliefs, and the polar bear blames the United States. And the polar bear seeks revenge. Now, obviously, this is not a polar bear. But if this were to happen in a country like Bangladesh, which gets flooded and creates millions of unemployed, desperate, angry, ashamed young Muslim men, and this is important, shame, men who can't feed their families, men who come home every day and don't feel like men, and their shame turns into anger, and they need someone to blame. And there's only one superpower left. And it's all because the polar ice caps have melted. He doesn't know that. All he knows is that we're the only superpower left and somehow it must be our fault. And this is what I try to get through in World War Z, is to talk about how everything is connected and problems that we might not understand will morph into other problems. So that's a hypothetical. I asked him in my recent interview if there were any real-world examples that are going on right now that he could highlight. Is there something in the world today that you sort of feel like embodies that, the interconnectedness and and that evolution from small thing to global catastrophe? Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at ISIS right now. I mean, and you can't just blame ISIS on Iraq. I mean, you know, ISIS started because of... the Arab Spring and the Arab Spring started because of one guy in Tunisia who couldn't feed his family and he couldn't do that because of the global food prices were so high and the global food prices were high because people were converting farmland to biofuels and mm-hmm. they were doing that because the high price of oil and the high price of oil because of Iraq. Right. So there's this chain of events that sucks us in. So how do you go about when you think conceptually about the whether it's the zombie problem in World War Z or the ISIS you know, cycle that you just talked about? How do you go about breaking that down in your own head? Is it something that you start with the current situation or in the state, in the uh, sense of World War Z, the, the end state, the end of the war? Or is it something that you start at the small thing and then work and expand out from the small thing? I think I always start with questions. Okay. I think I'm always sort of asking myself questions. And, and sometimes they're big ones and sometimes they're little tiny ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the... Whenever I sit down to write, whenever I'm looking at the blank page, the first thing I always write are my, are my lists of questions. And through answering that, I sort of start the ball rolling. Right. Okay. Is that – I mean, so it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of method for, for how you go about looking at these, these problems? No, no, because I, I think it depends on, on what the actual problem is. Uh, like, for example, Zombie Survival Guide was about how would I as an individual survive a zombie plague. Right. And that led to the answers that became the book. Whereas World War Z was how would we as a species, as a planet, survive a zombie plague? Mm-hmm. So completely different train of thought. Right. So a lot of what maybe not junior officers or cadets immediately, but in definitely in the future of their careers, understanding the complexities and the interconnectedness and those the connective tissue, the threads between all those items are going to be part of what, you know, cadets, graduates mm-hmm. of West Point officers do. Yeah. Um, is there a way that you found works best as a starting point or how to 
go about recognizing what issues are, are important in the world and and how do you go about doing that? I think I think the the word why is probably the most important word in our language. Certainly, if if you're in any sort of problem solving capacity, sort of why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And like for example, with Zombie Survival Guide, I learned that I, I started to think about it. And I started to think if there was a real zombie plague, most people would not die by zombie. Mm-hmm. Most people would die secondary tertiary. Right. They would die dehydration, malnutrition, accidents. And I learned that from studying military history. Mm-hmm. For every one soldier dies of combat death, how many soldiers in the past have died from just disease right. you know, or, or malnutrition or whatever, secondary tertiary problems? Yeah. How, do you, how do you foresee some of those things that you sort of called secondary tertiary problems Outside of a global catastrophe, how do those feed into security issues that military folk will be thinking about? Well, I I think we – what I've watched the military do in the last, I would say, five or ten years I think is awesome. And I think it's the kind of sort of nervous breakdown reinvention we should have had after Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is that the military is starting to imagine problems as not just a military problem. Right. That the wars of tomorrow – are the economic problems, the social problems, the environmental problems right. of today. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's great to, to sort of start to imagine everything is connected mm-hmm. because we used to be good at that. Economic problems, social problems, environmental problems, all potentially creating security problems. What Max Brooks is advocating is officers and leaders, especially in the armed forces, who are holistic, who understand the whole picture, and see at a higher level. Is that something that we're doing well in terms of educating our officers? And is that something that we as a community, as an army, as a security community, care about and think about? And if that's something we do care about, how do we foster that holistic thinking? Mr. Brooks says we have to focus on engagement. This is him at the Naval War College. We need to get back out into the world, and we need to stay in the world. And this is what I was trying to do, is that we need people who do nothing but see connections. And this is going to be the future leaders. So if individual and national engagement are key to our development and our understanding of the future problems of the world, how does that apply to the Army itself? What do you foresee the military's role being in that engagement? No, I, I think that <clears throat> I think that somebody, not necessarily the military, has to be the driving force for integration once again. Mm-hmm. And if if nobody else is doing it, maybe the military should. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think we have to get rid of this sort of compartmentalization. I think the worst thing that's ever happened in this country was the yellow ribbon, mm-hmm. because it really is the motherload of the empty gestures. Uh, and so when people say, "I, you know, I support our troops," how? Right. If the army is not functioning in the role of a great integrator, what is what does our engagement look like? I foresee the Army in the future integrating with other services mm-hmm. as far as our foreign policy, okay. because I, I think what we were, we've started to learn, and, and the funny thing is with Americans, we always have to relearn this. Right. We learned it in Somalia, and we forgot it, is that there's no such thing as a humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. without a security element. Uh, and I see the Army as being part of a team. And I think if we don't have that team that includes everybody... Uh, if you just try to do a military solution, just the same way you try to do a humanitarian solution, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. 
how do we prepare then if we are functioning as as we sort of have been in a lot of these conflicts as military police potentially integrating civil humanitarian aid how should we prepare as as officers to do that well i think the the army's done a couple things in the last few years that i think will pay huge dividends in the future without us realizing it one of them was you know, getting at, getting rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell allowed ROTC to come back on campus. Mm-hmm. And that is going to allow people, military cadets, to mix with the general population mm-hmm. and exchange ideas. And I think that's really important to depoliticize the military. Uh, and I think another thing is just general diversity. I think as America becomes more diverse, we will get people from other cultures. And I think that's important to learn from. I was just at SOCOM, uh, a general looked out at the room and said, I'm looking at a room of white males mm-hmm. who, who are engaged in a world where there are no white males. Right. So I, I think diversity is not just some sort of feel-good, granola-crunchy kind of attitude. It's not a bumper sticker. I think it's, it should be national policy. Right. So are there anything that is there anything that we should be doing or should be preparing for in our future role in terms of engagement that we're not well, I don't know if you're not doing it, but but I think what could happen more is is creative thinking, mm-hmm. uh, because in counterinsurgencies, as you well know, probably better than me, the rules change on a day to day basis, right. and you need to develop that part of your brain that's able to think on the fly. Right. And I think that's why the certain elements in the military are trying to get back to like tank warfare in Germany, mm-hmm. you know, fighting Russia, fighting China, because that's sort of steady, predictable warfare. Right. And that's not going to be the wars of the future. It's, I really don't think so. I, and I think we need to prepare our cadets, our, especially our leaders, mm-hmm. to think creatively instantly. Right. Now, obviously, as someone who writes for a living, you have to think creatively all the time. So, what, I mean, what is your method? Like, how, how did you build that skill? Well, I got very lucky because I was blessed with a curse. <laughs> I have dyslexia. Okay. Which, a really rotten learning disability mm-hmm. that I hated as a kid because nothing came easily to me. Right. But what it did was teach me how to be a problem solver mm-hmm. because nothing was easy and I took nothing for granted. So I always had to learn. You know, I couldn't be Westmoreland. I had to be the Viet Cong mm-hmm. throughout school. And so it made me a much more flexible thinker. And so I think that sort of problem solving skill is very important. Okay. And you think that has sort of helped you in your career as a writer? Yeah, I think, I think it has taught me to do end runs around conventional wisdom. You know, I went looking for a book on how to fight zombies, Mm -hmm. how to survive zombies. There wasn't one. So I thought, I will write it myself. So we as leaders need to engage and we need to be creative. Where does that creativity come from? I think this is a long-term thing. I think it actually has to be bottom-up. Junior officers always know that they run into the generational wall where they run into colonels and generals of a different generation who are, and that's not the colonels and generals problem, that's an age thing. After a certain age, you just stop learning new ideas. And I think if we can train this generation of junior officers to always be thinking, always be learning, always be reinventing themselves, then that will become their comfort zone Mm -hmm. when they start wearing general stars. So when when a second lieutenant in 2050 says, I have a brand new idea, they go, I'm open to brand new ideas. Okay, let's, let's try it out. You've talked a lot about everything in the book is based on something real, something that actually happened. Right. Do you, in in coming up with this stuff, think 
broadly and conceptually, or do you look back at history? Are you creating a new vision with your books? Or are you trying to trying to show how I, I, history has? I, I do both okay. uh, because I think everything I do is based in history. Everything I do is backed up by research, and I think that's my own dyslexic insecurity. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, I need to be a, like like a case lawyer. Right. Like if somebody comes up to me and says that would never happen, I need to be able to say it already has, mm-hmm. and I need to be able to have facts to back it up. Gotcha. So and. I think history is a great teacher, and that's another thing Americans don't do well. We don't, we don't learn from it. I was curious. It was funny watching the, uh, the Naval War College speech that you did. And I'm not sure if that was one of the first speeches you did <laughs> yeah. for a military organization. Oh, yeah. um, but it was funny up front because you were – you sort of weren't sure you were in the right spot. I think you even said that. No, uh, I'm sure, in, in you, sure you got the right guys and there are Lieutenant Commander Brooks somewhere. Yep, somewhere who's, who's lost. Um, but I was curious. I mean the – we as military officers read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of history stuff, right. a lot of um, you know current events type stuff. The fiction route is is something that I think is often neglected. Um, do you think there's an added benefit that that fiction can give us? A little nuance, perhaps, to yes. what we read. I think I think what fiction does, particularly science fiction or alternative history, is it circumvents the ego defense mechanism, mm-hmm. and that's something we all have. That's just hum- human nature. Is Nobody wants to be scared. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. So if you're reading something that trips that, it's mm-hmm. your brain's nature to be like, uh, this is a downer. Right. You know, let me let me just read something that makes me feel good. Yeah. So that way, if you call ISIS zombies or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it, if you if you make them Klingons, if you make them Cylons, right. then it's easier to be entertained, and you don't even realize that you're teaching yourself. So, looking at fiction. Is there any other fiction that you would recommend that military officers read? Is there anything else that people are writing that that runs kind of in the same current as, <clears throat> as what you wrote in World yeah. War Z? I would encourage uh, a Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. Heinlein. I mean, it's a classic. I tried to get it made back into a TV series. Nobody mm-hmm. bit. But because I think that Heinlein predicted the world we're living in right now. Back in the 50s, he predicted uh, a generation of, of – spoiled young people who live for themselves and then this military class totally separate. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's got some amazing ideas. Any, anything else sort of more current than that or is there? Yeah. Um, let me think about sort of currently if there's anything I'm sort of reading right now. I kind of like all the old stuff. I mean I'm always a fan of Red Storm Rising but I know that's right. pretty, probably dated. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think, I think that's, that's pretty much it. I mean Starship Troopers will always be an important one. And also, I'm a big fan of graphic novels. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's a comic book that's only about 20 pages long. It's about the Choctaw Code Talkers in World War One. Mm-hmm. I had no idea they existed, yeah. and what a mind blower that was. Yeah. I have to ask what you're working on now. What we can expect from you in the future? I'm part. I'm writing a comic book story as part of an anthology with Alan Moore and Garth Ennis and some other guys. My story is Gettysburg, mm-hmm. but it's alternative history Gettysburg. It's us versus giant ants. Okay. Civil War has never happened, and General Lee's in command. And it's really a story about not having the luxury of prejudice. Mm-hmm. Basically how when your back is against the wall, you have to reach out to talent no matter what their gender or skin color or whatever. Mm-hmm. And everybody needs to kick in. Right. For example, I think that the Army getting rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was amazing. Mm-hmm. I can tell you I haven't had much military experience. I've had like a semester of ROTC. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you the absolute finest cadet in my unit was a guy named Stephen May. Mm-hmm. Who later sued the army over "Don't ask, don't tell," and, and let me tell you, I would America would be a lot safer with Stephen May in a uniform than me. <laughs> so I'm glad we finally caught up to that. 
Thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, I just want to thank all of the new listeners that have subscribed recently. We hope you're really enjoying the podcast. If so, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps us bring in new listeners interested in the types of topics we cover. Thanks again.